I mean, she had it all. She was a beautiful doctor married in her 30s to an equally beautiful husband who also happened to be a doctor, and together they had three little adorable children, and this happy family lived in a $1.2 million home in a wealthy suburb of one of America's largest East Coast cities. I mean, it was the home, the story, and the online photo album that only the best romantic comedies could ever seem to be made of. And her life seemed to be perfect, even, I mean, to be honest, a little enviable. To her family and friends, it was the perfect existence. I mean, here they are again, dressed up for a formal event, looking utterly carefree and completely perfect. Wow, posted a commenter online. What a good-looking couple. And there were photo albums that were vast and adorned with lavish trips. There are pictures of her sailing Jackie O style on the East Coast and on a vacation in Hawaii, partying in New Orleans, lounging in Whistler, British Columbia, swathed in a thick spa robe, and then later fine dining by the fireplace. But as she lay dying in a seedy apartment of an apparent drug overdose... Her enviable social media life was shattered and revealed to be nothing more than a staged lie. It was all so fake. My name is Adam Shaw, and this is The Restorationist. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening, and most of all, thank you for sharing I frankly have been overwhelmed by the growth of this podcast over the past number of months, and it's all because of you. I don't really have a website, and we haven't done any sort of you know, advertising. It's just been you believing in the content and, and believing in me, and, and that has meant the world. And so welcome to season three. We're going to be shifting gears a little bit, and we're going to be talking about ideas, and we're going to be hitting pause on some of the organizational design and personal leadership stuff that we've been talking about for the past number of weeks. And we're going to be talking about the ideas that are shaping our world and honestly shaping us too. Because the things that we choose to believe have the ability to alter our view of reality. And our actions reflect a conscious or unconscious interpretation of how we feel life should be lived. And I guess to to put it in other words, The stuff we do reveals what we believe, even if we're not aware that we even believe it. And so in this season of The Restorationist, we're going to be exploring the ideas shaping our world and discovering how to live and lead like the apostolic church that God intended us to be. So this brings us back to our story. Because the contrast between this young doctor's online life And the death she died could not be more stark. I mean, this beautiful, successful doctor, married mother of three, world traveler, and she's dying in the vestibule of a bad apartment in the wrong area of town. And for all intents and purposes, it looks like a drug overdose. I mean, how crazy is this? But then again, I mean, these days, the gap between the person that we are and the person that we present to the world really has never been wider. To be honest, we're all rather quite staged. I I, I guess I could bore you with the statistics, but 
I won't. It's, it's suffice to say that if you if you look online, you, you'll see that there are millions of photos posted to Instagram every day. There are hundreds of millions of people, over a billion on Facebook. There's Twitter has a few hundred million, and there are all of the other social accounts. It's Social media is taking over our world, and increasingly, as a result, most of us are living two lives. The one that we are online, and then the actual real one, not on the internet. And studies show that this duality of existence makes us more vulnerable to all sorts of things, from depression to loneliness to low self-worth. In fact, in 2013, uh, scientists at two German universities monitored 584 Facebook users and found out that one out of three would feel worse about their life after checking what their friends were up to, especially those friends had just posted vacation photos. One of the study's authors put it this way, that overall shared content doesn't have to be explicitly boastful. People don't have to be Facebook bragging for feelings of envy to emerge. In fact, someone who's lonely may just see the number of birthday wishes that someone who's more sociable gets on their Facebook wall and feel envious of that. Equally, if someone changes their relationship status from single to in a relationship, someone who's just gone through, let's say, a really bad breakup, it, it'll, it'll push them over the edge and, and, and cause them to undergo some sort of emotional havoc. In 2014, a Manhattan-based marketing agency by the name of Current found that 61% of millennial moms were rattled by the pressures of social media. Seeing everyone else's highlight reels, how Facebook usage is linked to depressive symptoms, was co-authored with a few social psychologists and eventually was published in the Journal of Clinical Psychology. And Dr. Steers there cited the work of social psychologist Leon Festinger, who in 1954 came up with this idea of social comparison theory. And basically that is, is that uh, we, we measure ourselves in relation to others' failures and successes. And so what we do is we compare ourselves among ourselves, which is not wise. At least that's what I've, I think I've read somewhere that, that before. It's in the Bible. Uh, and, but the, the fact of the matter is, is that this is a human compulsion and a human tendency. And our immersion in social media has only exacerbated that tendency. And as a result, we are comparing ourselves amongst ourselves, either to successes or to failures. And we are hinging our emotional world on what we see others do online. And it doesn't matter how accomplished you are. We're all vulnerable to this fact. Real and fake. Comfortable duality. We live lives that are staged. Anybody remember the trend from a few years ago uh, where, uh, and maybe this is still a deal, but I remember there was a bunch of viral videos a few years ago of the GoPro proposal. You can, you can watch them on YouTube and people were getting hundreds of thousands of hits. People who planned and recorded the moment they got engaged and uploaded it for global consumption. You know, some couples live streamed it. And of course, my favorite were some of the ones where the person being asked said no. To me, one, one writer put it this way, this engagement thing is so creepy. There's this weird arms race now where everything has to be a moment, no matter how private. 
we always get a lot of responses with weddings and engagements as people spend a lot of money to look Pinterest perfect. It's not just weddings, it's, or special events. Social media users, we spend an enormous amount of time to make everyday mundane things look like the most lavish, on-trend, stylish thing ever. It's just where there are no problems. Uh, one social media influ- influencer was, uh, was interviewed a while ago, and she said, I have this side of my apartment that I photograph, and it's perfect. The other side is always a mess. I buy so many things to maintain my image. I even consider it important to always have a fridge full of La Croix and coconut water for pictures of my fridge. Saying this, she said, just makes me realize how insane all of this is. And she confessed that she's $3,400 in credit card debt. It's a hidden life, a stage life, a fake life. We're the one side of the apartment that's messy. That's the real us. And then the fancy coconut water, that's the online us, a hidden and stage life. Was the same true for this young doctor? Who knows? All that we know is that after telling her husband she was going to go into the city for a night out, she met up with some friends, and they were out till 2.30 in the morning drinking hard, using cocaine. And the next thing we know, she's in an apartment building, and the media called it a cocaine apartment because she was classy and pretty and a dead doctor in crack house didn't just have the same elegance. But the following day, she was sprawled out in the vestibule, her feet propping up the main door. And surveillance video showed a taxi driver and her friend she was with dragging her body down the building stairs, leaving her to die of overdose alone. No one in her family saw this coming. One friend said she was a ray of sunshine that did a lot of charity work. Who hasn't gone off her rocker? But was that all this was, though? Is just a night gone bad? Someone cutting loose a little too much and accidental overdose in a crack house? I mean, cocaine apartment? Like, was that what this was? Reporters begin to dig into the background of this doctor and trying to figure out how in the world this could happen. And they came across a skincare specialist with a huge clientele in this wealthy suburban neighborhood. And and that specialist said, look, I hear the stories. And many of these women in this neighborhood are leading double lives. And, you know, they've got this perfect online image and then they cut loose in private alone. But you'll never be able to tell that online. See, here's the thing I have discovered is that social media has altered the social and relational landscape of our culture. And it has led us into this weird thing where we stage things, all of us. I mean, I've done it. I've I've reorganized my, my table at a coffee shop to make it look like I hadn't spilled crumbs and coffee everywhere. So it would look good for the gram. We're all guilty of this. We all are. We have become so immersed into this world that 
we are just as good at branding our own personal lives as Coke and Pepsi and Mercedes are at branding their products. We've become our own brand managers and our own message managers and our own publicists where our online life is a projection of what we want other people to see. And lest this sound like mere sermonizing, it has been proven that technological advances, if not monitored and held accountable through the lens of moral values and sound ethics, can have a massive cultural shifting effect on how we live and how we feel about ourselves, how we treat each other. And let me, let me give you an example uh, from a completely unrelated technology, but, uh, but illustrates nonetheless, illustrates nonetheless of how much technology can shape us and change things. And if we're not aware of it, we, we, we uh, 10 years, five years, three years later, we find the, the, the world completely changed and it's almost like we're none the wiser. Here's the example. It's air conditioning. I know. What in the world does air conditioning have to do with social media and dead doctors and, and, and the changing of the social landscape? It's this. It's an illustration separate from the one that we are co- currently as a culture completely immersed in. It's an illustration that shows us that technology can inadvertently change everything before we know it. So in 1906, um, Willis Carrier filed a patent for the first modern air conditioning device, and he was called the apparatus for treating air. Um, And it was able to treat air temperature as well as uh, humidity. And Carrier became a very, very rich man. And his invention completely changed the social fabric of the United States. Back in, before air conditioning was, was here, a lot of homes were Victorian style. They had these big, wide windows and deep porches, and they uh, these porches would wrap largely around the house. And because of Carrier's invention, the Victorian style house with the big windows and the big porches began to die out. No one needed them anymore. And the ranch house style of architecture was born with rectangular shapes and lower ceilings and structures that really could fit on just a tiny little section of property. And this shift in in architecture and geographic development and urban planning, because of Carrier's invention, brought about a shift in the way that people related to one another. As the front porch began to disappear and the windows were not so large and not so many, so did a natural and normal rhythm of connecting with neighbors as social events moved inside and the shared life of the neighborhood began to dwindle and diminish. It was a tiny piece of technology, a little technology designed to make the air cooler and less humid in the summer, but it revolutionized nearly every aspect of North American culture as we know it. Because air conditioning changed how we spoke to the neighbors. And the act of installing a device to cool our homes meant that we now retreated inside. And it changed how we interacted with other human beings. And today, you know, there's a good chance that many of us listening to this podcast don't know very much about the people that live two doors down. We just don't. I was talking about the development of this episode with a friend of mine. His name's Joel. And he... um told me this crazy story of a conversation he had with 
one of his neighbors concerning an interaction that that neighbor had with someone who lived down the street. And the, uh, the neighbor was saying, look, I was headed outside and I saw my, my neighbor holding a, a, a bumper, just a chunk of a bumper as a car sped away. And instantly this friend of Joel's told him that I instantly, I thought this, this was a domestic violence incident. And you know, like, I don't want to get, I don't want to get involved in that. And so I stepped on the accelerator and drove away. The problem was this wasn't a domestic dispute. This gentleman's neighbor had just had his car stolen. And instead of stopping to help, this man told my friend Joel, I just stepped on the gas and drove away because I assumed something was wrong with his personal life. And it turns out I had the wrong story because I don't even know my own neighbors. This is how much simply cooling the air inside the home has drastically changed how we relate and interact with other human beings. And if air conditioning could do this, how much more can social media? Think about that. Isn't that crazy for a second? If air conditioning can do this, how much more can social media? I, I, uh, I love Sherry Turkle's writings, and she has this amazing book called Alone Together. And here's what, here's what she wrote. Technology is seductive when what it offers meets human vulnerabilities. We are lonely but fearful of intimacy. And digital connections and the social robot may offer the illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship. Our network life has allowed us to hide from each other even as we are tethered to each other. We'd rather text than talk. And this leads, she says in her conclusion, to a reduction of expectations, both of ourselves and of others in our social relationships. Now, while I'm not advocating for us all to ditch our phones and delete our accounts, that would be a knee-jerk reaction, and isolation is, is not a great idea. But what I am trying to do in this episode is call out the spirit of the age that leads us and drives us to stage our lives and to have this weird duality of fake life and real life. And while I don't blame social media, I do believe that like air conditioning, technology has led us to create an environment where our most base and most carnal and sinful natures allow its darkest and most dangerous tendencies to emerge from within the recesses of our soul. We're just like Adam and Eve. And just like Adam and Eve, we realize that we are naked our sin is exposed. We are separate from God. We are ashamed. We've got issues. But now we hide. We clothe ourselves not in fig leaves, but in selfies. Annoying religious memes, full-length shots of our church clothes, and all of the churchy hashtags we can imagine. And like Adam and Eve, this action that we have taken on as a result of the new cultural world that we are a part of, it's led our life to become invulnerable and closed. There's this lack of mutual submission. There's a lack of openness. We are constantly connected, but we are at the same time almost invulnerable 
to exposing our real selves to the real world with other actual living, breathing, flesh and blood human beings in front of us. This is dangerous. It may not lead to the extreme of behavior that we saw with this uh, tragic story of this young doctor. But it can lead to other things that are not good for our soul and our emotional health. I mean, there's got to be a better way. It's got to be a different way to live. And thankfully, there is a way that we can find, and there are some principles that we can take and use and will apply to our life. And that way is the way of the early apostolic church. You know, this podcast is called The Restorationist because I want to, with the name of the podcast, echo the cry of the early 20th century Pentecostal revival movements. They had this rallying cry that was back to Pentecost, and that was uh, back to Pentecost, back to Acts. And essentially what they were saying is, we, we want to be more like the early church than ever before, that we want to restore everything that the apostles lived and died and for in, in our life in the 20th century right now. We want to embody the early church and What's amazing about the principles in the early church that we find in the book of Acts is that the way that they lived has incredible implications for our life today, despite we are separated by 2,000 years, if we will only apply those principles. Here's what the early church did. They made an intentional decision to live in community. They lived unstaged. You know, when I studied Roman and Greek uh, history in uh, university, I discovered a world that was obsessed with power, affluence, entertainment, the sexual attractiveness of the human body, people that were concerned with their appearance and displays of wealth. I mean, Rome, um, many Roman families were in great debt because of the, the amount of money that they spent on, you know, jewelry and, and fashion and sexual vices. And to be honest, when you look at Greek and Roman history, we see the world as it is today, albeit with more electrical stuff. But the post-Acts 2 church stuck out, and they had a completely different way of living. And I believe that if we can kind of go back in, the, in time and look at the principles that they used to live in their day, despite all of its vices and mores, we could live we could live healthy and powerful and anointed lives like they did, despite the mores and perversion and vices that exist in the 21st century. And there are five verses of scripture that just perfectly embody this pattern of how we should live. It's found in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. It says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. They sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all, and as everyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God And having favor with all the people, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now, there are lots of things that we could unpack here, but really, let's just focus and zone in on how they interacted socially and relationally with each other. 
we see very clearly that there was this openness and this authenticity to life that was prevalent in this early church. And it wasn't because they lived in an open and sincere world. I mean, the Greco-Roman world was one of the most insincere and closed places, inauthentic places in history. And we see them selling their possessions and their goods and sacrificing and giving for the betterment of others. It says they practiced something called koinonia. And that's the, uh, that's the word we, we find um, in common. That means they practiced community. They shared and they did life together. For them, life was about the building of a community around the worship of Jesus the pursuit of Jesus, the worship of Jesus, learning the ways of Jesus. And in that community where they were all striving towards a common goal, they loved and cared for each other. And as a result, they became a community within their cities and nations. And it was one where they took care of one another and they watched out for one another. And when I read Acts uh, from, you know, 47 on, I see these principles come alive over and over and over again. And then when you read the Pauline epistles, you, you see them over and over again. This organic, natural, unfiltered way of living and serving, a identification of needs and power of prayer and, and love that can only come from real unity where people are unfiltered and open with one another. In there, we also see fear and reverence and respect for biblical authority. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Fear came upon every soul. That means awe and reverence came upon every soul, both for the things that were taught and for the people that were teaching them. They had real healthy relationships and real genuine, authentic biblical community. And having community like this in the 21st century is hard. It really is, especially when we can create the illusion of togetherness and at the same time silo and compartmentalize our life through the advent of social media. Community like this is going to require authenticity in us. It's going to require us to take off the mask. It's going to require us to be vulnerable, willing to show weakness and accept Responsibility. See, our like, share, heart, follow culture has inflamed our insecurities where we are so afraid of being, air quotes here, judged. But what we often do is misinterpret real, loving, biblical accountability from a pastor or a friend or an elder as being too judgy. See, uh, those of us that are Millennials, that means you're under the age of 35. We were raised by baby boomer and Gen Xer helicopter parents who washed every boo-boo, yelled at every mean teacher, made sure that we got participation ribbons, even though we got crushed on the soccer field. And as a result, my generation, our generation, we tend to crack and crumble 
at the first sign of anything less than total acceptance. And while I don't blame, you know, the generation of Boomer and Gen X parents, they were trying to live out the a knee-jerk reaction to not be like generations before them that went through wars that, that as a result made them hard or harsh or actually judgmental and legalistic. But as a result of the pendulum swinging so far the other way, our skin is so thin and we crumble and we fall apart at the first sign of anything less than unabashed, total, complete acceptance of everything that we want, desire, or self-identify as. Everyone's speaking, you know, air quotes, my truth. What does that even mean? <laughs> but if you don't accept my truth, if there's something that that you don't like or something that you disagree with, now you are intolerant and you are hateful and you are spiteful. And as a result, you must be crushed and your opposition must be ostracized no matter the cost. Because in our current culture, it's entirely impossible now to love and disagree at the same time. There must be a giant stamp of yes on everything in everyone's life. Otherwise, we're haters. And we must resist these internal cultural tendencies as followers of Jesus. The only way I know how to do that is to get rid of the stage life and choose to live in biblical, authentic, and real community. To have an openness and a vulnerability and a respect for the authority of God's word. We've got to get rid of the stage life. We've got to abandon it. It's killing us. The only way that I know how to thicken our skins and learn from our mistakes and truly become disciples is if we intentionally take off the mask and deal with who we really are. You know, the amazing thing about the Bible is the more you read it, the more you discover how it seems to be writing with a laser focus to our generation despite being a couple of thousand years removed. Maybe James saw us as 21st century citizens more than anyone else when he wrote in James chapter 5, verse 16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. The only way to conquer the idol of image in our culture, the only way to resist this duality of life that isolates our most corruptible parts of our life and leaves us to our own vices, void of accountability, is just to take off the mask, is just to stop pretending, is just to break the duality between the online and real you, the staged public image managed you, and the you you really are on the inside. Just take off the mask. And you're like, well, how do I do that? Well, here's, here's tip number one. We've got to become kings and queens of the awkward conversation. Got to be kings and queens of the awkward conversation. We avoid awkward things, awkward moments. We have to embrace the awkward. And sometimes the awkward is us. 
where it becomes okay to say, I'm not okay, where it becomes all right to just be open with who you really are right now, to say, I'm struggling, I'm suffering, I'm lonely, I have sin in my life, I've got addictions in my life, to confess. That's what James says. We've got to confess our faults, confess our sins, our failures to one another. But, but there are some qualifications on, on, on this confessing, though. When we confess, it cannot be anonymous. It cannot be anonymous. We got to own it. You know, we got this, uh, this weird saying in our culture that says, you know, oh, oh, I'm not a bad person. I just do bad things. Well, Jesus gives us a completely different example when he sees a tree that does not have the right fruit on it, what does he do? Does he go, oh, man, you know, that's a good tree, but, you know, it's just, it's not, it's not, you know, it doesn't have the right fruit right now. You know, oh, bad fruit, bad fruit, good tree. No, Jesus doesn't do that. He curses the tree. The fruit of someone's life is simply a reflection of who they already are. It cannot be anonymous. We've got we've to come to the brutal realization that the things that we do, the thoughts that we think, the habits that we form, they're us. There can be no hiding. And we've got to own it. We must own it. We cannot have arm's length relationship with our sinful behaviors and bad habits and fakery. We've got, we've got to own. Our confession cannot be anonymous. And when we confess, number two, we've got to confess to the right people, the right people, the people that actually have the power to help us change, people who will love enough, love us enough to be real, to be direct, to at times temporarily hurt our feelings so that we can reorder our steps. The scripture says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And if you don't have anybody in your life that can absolutely blow up your world if you do something dumb, you're in the wrong circle of friends. If you can post on Facebook but not have the actual conversation in person with someone who is an influencer in your life or someone who has actual spiritual authority in your life, something is wrong. If you can you can vent online but you can't talk about it, Something is out of balance in your life. See, in 15 years, I've been involved in pastoral ministry in, in various things, in various uh, stages, and with a whole bunch of different people. And here's what I've discovered. People who can post all over the place but never once reach out for pastoral guidance or spiritual authority are usually looking for affirmation of their feelings without the challenge to change. And this is not healthy. The advent of social media has allowed us to broadcast our issues without risk of accountability because if I don't like the response, I can block you. Or what I can do is I can crowdsource enough affirmations and enough likes to nullify those that would speak up and challenge me. Or I can hold off and put at arm's length those that would speak up and challenge me because I know they'll never respond 
to what I do online online because that would violate their biblical principles. They want to have a one-to-one face-to-face conversation. So what I do is I avoid the ability to have that one-to-one face-to-face conversation. I avoid that direct, actual, real human relationship, and I just post online all the time so that I can get the affirmations I need so I can continue living the life that I want. When we confess, it must be to the right people. And three, when the accountability comes, we must accept whatever accountability comes into our life. This is the only way that I know how we can overcome this this fake staged world that we're living in now. See, technology is moving at a rapid pace. A futurist, Ray Kurzweil, wrote in 2001 that every decade, our overall rate of progress was doubling. But based on the current speed of technology in the 21st century, we're not going to experience 100 years of progress because technology is moving at such a rapid pace. He says the next 100 years of progress will be more like 20,000 years of progress. And if we're not careful, we can unwillingly adopt behaviors that bring about a fundamental shift in our values before we even know it. Sherry Turkle says, we are psychologically programmed not only to nurture what we love, but to love what we nurture. That's incredibly profound. Whatever we feed in our life will become what we love. Whatever we cultivate in our life is what we'll love. This doesn't mean that we should flee or social media. This doesn't mean we should be paranoid about the internet or think that everything is the mark of the beast. I'm not talking about that. It just means that we have got to be thoughtful and intentional and biblical in every area of our life. That we shouldn't just unthinkingly adopt behaviors and uh, forms of technology and expressions of technology in our life without thinking, oh man, how in the world will someone who's trying really hard to be an apostolic individual and part of a Book of Acts style church, how in the world is someone who's trying to restore the values of the New Testament spirit-filled movement in their life, how would they approach this? What boundaries would they put in place to make sure that they don't become like the rest of the world in their handling of what's new and what's next? As I said earlier, the name of this podcast represents the cry of the early 20th century Pentecostal movement to get back to Acts. Those early pioneers saw that the only way for the church to move forward was to look back and to seek to embody the heart and the culture of that early church. It's believing that I live in a culture, I'm a product of a culture, but because of the new birth, I am now in a kingdom, a kingdom of Jesus. And kingdom culture always supersedes my culture. And being an apostolic goes beyond just believing and preaching what the apostles preached and affirming certain intellectual truths, but it's seeking to incarnate in our day the very kind of life that Peter and Paul and James and Dorcas and Lydia and Thomas lived in theirs. It's time to be unstaged. It's time to be vulnerable. It's time to live open. Thanks for listening. And as always, if there's someone you know that this could help, please share it with them. Thanks again.